You noticed, I'm sure, that the words we just sung were from the opening of Isaiah 40, which is a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. And as we turn to our text this morning, as we are working through Luke, we come to the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. Let's with great joy go to the Lord our God. O Lord, with reverent joy, we now open your word and we pray that the same Holy Spirit who has given to us this word by divine inspiration will now enable us to see Christ on this page, to see how you are working as we work our way through Luke's gospel redemptively to bring the Savior into the world to redeem us from our awful, hell-deserving sins. And as we, your people, grow in grace, and we pray that we will, as we once again meet you in word and sacrament, as you inhabit the praises of your congregation, we also pray for those who may be among us who do not know the Lord Jesus at all. And as they see your people worshiping you from the heart, as they understand that we have something by grace that they need, as they hear the word of God read and proclaimed, We pray for the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, who alone can open a heart, and that just as you did open the heart of Lydia centuries ago, you would open those hearts this morning. May the word of the Lord indwell us richly, and we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, but have given to us your inerrant word. In the name of Christ, we give you thanks and pray. Amen. Standing together to read the word. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 57. This is the word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came On all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, a writer from a bygone day made a statement that has always been dear to me. He said, Sooner may all the water of the ocean be put into a nutshell than that the infinite being of God should be comprehended by angels or men who are finite creatures. And always I hope that sense of reverence and awe fills the heart of every believer, but especially at this time of the year as we dwell together upon the incarnation of our Lord The fact that this great, holy, transcendent God, separate from sin, became a baby. 
that God became man without ceasing to be God. I hope that fills your hearts with a certain reverence and awe that increases in your Christian life day to day and year to year. The pressure is rising as we come to Bethlehem. Do you remember Klaus Schilder's definition of redemptive history that I passed on to you? The successive realization in time of God's thoughts of peace for us according to his fixed plan and fulfillment in time of this work program which Father, Son, and Spirit decided before time. Adding, in every subsequent epoch, there is a decisive entrance of something new, an inevitable increase in atmospheric pressure, a rise in temperature, a drawing nigh to Bethlehem. And that's what's been happening as we have worked our way through all of the Bible and we see that God is leading his people on to the coming Redeemer. Now as we have turned to Luke's gospel, we see that this wondrous thing is happening. Christ is about to come into the world. The Son of God is about to be incarnate and the atmospheric temperature is rising. Because as we read in verse 66, the hand of the Lord is at work. And as we come to the birth of John the Baptist, it will help us to remember how God's hand has already been seen. You'll remember that Zechariah and Elizabeth, an old couple, were childless. They were too old to have a child, though they longed for one. And as Zechariah, who was a priest, was fulfilling his temple service, the angel Gabriel from the throne of God came and promised the birth of John to Elizabeth. And his birth would bring great joy. Zechariah responded with unbelief. He had his eye on the child, not on the promise. He looked at the difficulty rather than in faith believing the promise of God. And the wonderful thing is that his unbelief did not invalidate the promise because the promise was unconditional for God's people. Zechariah was unable to speak until the word of the Lord was fulfilled, just as God had said, you will not be able to speak until the child is born because of your unbelief. Gabriel had said, I am Gabriel. That is, I have come from the throne of God. I am speaking the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord will be fulfilled. It is true. It will happen. God will keep his word. And in this text, we see God keeping his word. We see three unusual things in this text. Here they are. First, we see an old couple has a son. An old couple has a son. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. She bore a son because God said she would. This is the fulfillment of God's word. The Lord had not spoken his word in 400 years. There had not been a miracle in 500 years since the time of Daniel. The last time there was a cluster of miracles in redemptive history was 800 years before this, during the time of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Something is going on. The atmospheric pressure is growing higher. God spoke and it would be done. A natural pregnancy and birth, but supernaturally caused. Elizabeth conceived and bore a son because God's promises to his people never, never fail. God is keeping his word. Of this God, we read in Numbers 23, 19, 
God is not man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? And so in verse 58, we read of the great joy that has come as Elizabeth Elizabeth gives birth to this son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Just as God said in verse 14 of this first chapter, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. No wonder there's joy. Elizabeth's barrenness has been removed. God is magnifying his mercy. Joy is a theme that pervades these first two chapters of Luke's gospel. Following his birth will come the Messiah's birth. Our joy should intensify as we read these chapters. Look at what the Lord has done for you, people of God. That in eternity past, God planned to redeem you. That he set his love upon you. That through the prophets, he promised that his son would come. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. That he went to a cross, that he shed his blood, that he rose again, that he ascended on high. That the Holy Spirit has opened your heart and granted you saving faith. This joy that is experienced by the people of God should be even more intensified and known by you and me today. We know far more about God and his truth and his redemption and his salvation than did these people who rejoiced at the birth of John the Baptist. So an old couple has a son. But then secondly, moving in the text, we see the child receives a surprising name. A surprising name. Verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. And so they bring on the eighth day John the Baptist, the parents do, for his circumcision. Imagine the joy of this old couple that thought they never would have a child. Now bringing this child, this very special child, in God's plan of redemption in order that he might be circumcised. Circumcision, of course, was a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, as we have many times spoken. The removal of the foreskin of the male procreative organ points to the need of the shedding of blood in order for the removal of original sin. And of course, baptism now has replaced circumcision as pointing to that great reality of what God is capable of doing in saving our children through the blood of Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, in his old commentary, made what is to me a very arresting comment about children. He said, the greatest comfort we can take in our children is in recognizing their covenant relation to God. And then he added this, and I at least want want you to think about it. He said, the baptism of our children should be more our joy than their birth. You think about it. Naming a child usually happened at Jewish settings at birth. But tradition said that Moses was named when he was circumcised. And of course, Abram was renamed Abraham when he was circumcised. And so there is precedent for a child being named at the point of circumcision. The crowd expects the child to be named after his father because it was typical 
in Jewish settings for a son to be named after his father or after his grandfather. And the crowd protests Elizabeth's choice. Let's read verses 59 through 61. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. I'll bet some of you young couples have heard something like that. (laughs) So if you want to name your child Aloysius or something like that, you might want to keep it a secret for a while. But the whole community is getting involved in this matter of naming the child, the whole Jewish community in this small Judean village. Now remember, significant figures at crucial points in redemptive history are given significant names. Zechariah therefore knows that there is something significant about this child and his name, And the crowd signs to Zechariah. Now the word kaphos that is used here, that means he can't speak, that he's he's unable to speak, he's mute, can also mean deaf. And I can't prove the point, but it seems reasonable to think that not only can he speak, but probably he can't hear. And so, like a game of charades, the community gathers around him. He certainly can't speak. He can't say what he wants to say. Probably can't hear. And so you can see the, 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 the women in particular probably in his face and saying, you know, they're, they're gesturing to him. They, they're, they're speaking perhaps, but he, he can't make any response. And they're saying, you know, look here and then look at the baby and, and look at Elizabeth. And maybe they're gesturing, what about your grandfather or your own name? And, and so it must have been a really comical sight. The name's just all wrong. They just don't get why his name would be called John. No one in the family has been called John. And so Zechariah takes a pinakidion, which would be a wood tablet on which there was wax in order that he might write the child's name. Something that corresponds, you Latin scholars, to an absidarian where the child would write his ABCs. It's sort of like like the ancient version of an iPad. I guess for nine months he's been writing to his wife, no, I don't want that for dinner or whatever it may have been. That's the only way in which he communicated. And I assume he communicated what happened when he was in the temple with the angel Gabriel by writing probably on this very same wax tablet. He took the tablet and what does he write? He writes his name Might be John, could be John, rather might think it could be John. He writes, his name is John. Not my wife thinks his name should be John, or I think his name should be John. Not in the future his name will be called John, but his name is John. Why? Because God himself through the angel Gabriel, had already given this baby his name before he was born. And what does John mean? If it is true that this is a point in redemptive history that is very significant, and it is, he's the forerunner of the Savior, is he not? that therefore his name must have significance, which is the typical way through redemptive history this thing is worked out. 
then what does His name mean? His name means Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is gracious. His name means something indeed. It speaks of God who is gracious in and of Himself. God's grace that shines in election is manifest in the covenant. That is shown in the greatest splendor on the cross where our Savior would suffer. That is displayed in our justification and adoption that is that is evident in the eternal life that God gives to each of his people as a free gift. All of that and more is meant by this child's name. All that is meant by God being a gracious God, Jehovah being a gracious and merciful God, is summarized in this little baby's name. You take that little baby in your arms and think, behind this little baby is the infinite, eternal God who is the God of grace and mercy to his people. And now, after a 400-year silence, God is fulfilling his promise, and all that it means that God is gracious will be seen more wonderfully than it has ever before been seen. So that you who are sitting here this morning might be saved from your hell-deserving sins through the message of the gospel of grace and that you might believe, and that you might be saved. Do you believe that God is a gracious God? I ask you. Do you? That He sets sinners free, that He liberates those bound in sin, that there is now peace and not fear, hope and not terror, love and not hate, life and not death. Jehovah is gracious And John, as we know, will point to him and will say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He will point to Jesus and he will say, Here is what it means that my name means God is gracious. I'm pointing to the one who is incarnate, who is grace and truth himself. And so we've seen an old couple has a son. And the child receives a surprising name. But the next unusual thing is, thirdly, Zechariah's speech is restored. Zechariah's speech is restored. Now back in chapter 1, verse 20, this chapter, but verse 20, you will remember that Gabriel had told Zechariah, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And now we come to this narrative in verses 63 and 64. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. Zechariah writes, His name is John. His speech is restored immediately. Parakrema, an adverb that is used frequently in Luke's gospel of the miracles of Jesus that were immediately performed in this wonderful way. Just as God had said, his ability now to speak is restored. 
One of the old writers said, infidelity closed his mouth and now believing opens it again. I can't help but think of that great verse in Exodus where God says to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Now I ask you, as you think about these things and you think about this old man who couldn't speak because God took away his ability and now it's restored. And you see all that's happening here and we're moving on to the birth of the Savior. What attribute of God in addition to grace, what attribute of God do you see most splendidly in this passage? Would you not agree with me that it is the power of God? That it is the omnipotence of God? And even to think about the power of God in my utter and complete weakness makes me tremble within, the, within my soul, within my heart. Tremble with, with gratitude and with, with, with genuine pleasure because this powerful, this omnipotent God is for me and not against me in Christ. Let me just remind you, if I may, of some scriptures about the power of God. Sarah laughed at the thought of having a child in her old age, but in Genesis 18.6, God says that nothing is impossible with him. Without context, but you will remember some of the context, 1 Chronicles 29.12, Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Job 26.12, he divideth the sea with his power, and by his understanding he smiteth the proud. Psalm 62, verse 11, God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Psalm 65, verse 6, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded with power. Psalm 115, 3, but our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Isaiah 43, 13, yea, before the day was, I am, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall stop it? Matthew 19, verse 26, but Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Luke one thirty seven, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Revelation 19.6, and I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Will you, child of God, in your weakness, in your need, In your struggles, with your problems, will you from this text and from the Word of God as a whole take heart in the knowledge that God is all-powerful? Do you think upon the attributes of God, upon the greatness of His infinite grace and mercy, but also do you think upon His omnipotence, His power? And just as his understanding is infinite, so is his power. 
His power extends to all things. God cannot lie, but he can and will do all his holy will. His power is absolute in creation, absolute in upholding the universe, absolute in redeeming and converting sinners like us. And so what should the knowledge of God's almighty power, what should the knowledge of God's power produce within you and within me? I think it should produce at least two attitudes. The first is humility. Utter and complete humility as we consider who this God is who saves us, almighty in his power. But also, it should produce in our lives stability. All that God is, he is for his people, and that includes his divine omnipotence. And so his mercy is a mercy for you that is omnipotent. His grace for you is a grace that is all-powerful. And aren't both of these, humility and stability, why the Lord took Abraham out and assured him of his promise in Genesis 15? Look to the heavens and count the stars if you can. Or the point of Isaiah 40, 25 and 26, To whom will you liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number? He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one faileth. So you say, indeed, pastor, it is good to read in the text and to see that God is all-powerful and omnipotent. And I believe that he showed his almighty power when he stopped this man from speaking, took away his ability to speak, and when he restored his ability to speak. I believe in the abstract that God is almighty, but boy, I wish God would be omnipotent in my situation. I wish God would be omnipotent in my case. I wish that God would be omnipotent with my need. But my friend, he is. He is. Look at Jesus Christ hanging upon a tree. Is he not omnipotent there? But I ask, who would have known it? Who would have seen it? And so it is in your own life experience as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we may not see God exercise his almighty power, but there is never a time when he is not exercising his omnipotence for the sake of his church. Indeed, Ephesians 1 tells us that the same power with which he raised his son from the dead is the power that now is at work in the lives of his people so that his gospel might be displayed to a watching world and we might be taken all the way to our heavenly inheritance. Do you remember Mary's song, speaking of God's arm? She said in verse 51, as we saw last week, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He shows his strong right arm, as Isaiah likes to put it. So if I pull up my Geneva gown and pull up my... Is that going to move you to think that it's nice that your pastor has an arm? What can my arm do? Nothing. What can my little arm do? It can kneel before the Lord with the rest of my body in prayer and say, I'm nothing and I have no power and I need yours. But God, he can roll it back. 
And he can say, I have an arm of omnipotence, and that arm of omnipotence I display for my people, and each of my, each of my own is under the authority of my power, and nothing is happening in your life that is somehow abstracted from my power, separated from my power, apart from my power. Never assume that since you cannot see God at work in the way that Zechariah could, Never assume that because you do not see him at work, that to use Calvin's language, that God is somehow idle in heaven. He's never idle in heaven. He's always exercising all of his attributes for his own glory and the good of his people. This is the God who can create and did create the worlds. This is the God who could cause the virgin to conceive without knowing a man. This is the God who can cause Elizabeth in her old age to bear a son. This is the God who can take away Zechariah's voice and restore it again. This is the God who can raise dead sinners to spiritual life. This is the God who can raise the dead. And he can take care of you seeing that you arrive at your heavenly home because he has promised in 1 Peter that there is an inheritance that is reserved for you and that you are reserved, kept for your inheritance. For nothing, nothing, struggling Christian, struggling with temptation and sin, struggling with all of the, all of the frailties of life, nothing is impossible with God. So we have in this text, might and grace, might and grace, might and grace, might and sovereign mercy, might and mercy, might and mercy, might and mercy. Never simply might, never alone grace or mercy, but might and grace extended to the salvation of his people from our sins. Now those are the three, wouldn't you agree, unusual things that happen in the lives of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Not every day that an old couple, probably shuffling around with arthritis, gives birth to a son that's going to be the forerunner of the Redeemer. It's a very unusual thing. Now let's take some of these thoughts and bring them together in some, some comments that I want, to, I want you to take with you, some thoughts. First, Once again in this passage, we see, as we have been seeing emphasized all along, the fulfillment of God's own word, God keeping his word, and indeed fulfilling the promises of the prophets. Did God say an old couple will have a son? Then he will have a son. Did God say the child would be great? Then the child would be great. Did God say that Zechariah would speak again? Then he will speak again. Does God say when you believe in his son that you're saved for time and eternity, then you're saved for time and eternity? Did God say that he would not leave nor forsake you, then he will not leave you and he will not forsake you? God's word is true. God's word is sure. And so the text once again calls upon us to believe God's word and to submit to its authority and to believe that it is true. Come what may, No matter how dark the way, no matter how hard the experience, no matter what the critics say, no matter what others say, you believe his word. Young people, believe the word of God. Life without the word of God. I'm talking about the Bible. Life without the word of God is absurd. 
believe his word. And then, second, how should we respond to this text as a whole, do you think? Well, let's read together verses 65 and 66 and see how the neighbors responded. Verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We see at least three responses. First was godly fear, and that needs stressing today in our casual, careless age. John Murray beautifully speaks of the fear of the Lord in this way. The piety of the Bible is that of the contrite and humble spirit that trembles at God's word. For the Christian, this does not mean a sense of dread, but we stand in awe of him. Therefore, God, fear God, for not to fear him is to fear everything. Fear God, for not to fear him is to fear everything. Or as John Knox put it, fear God, fear sin, fear nothing else. Proverbs 3.17, My son, be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. What else did they do? Well, they talked about it. They spread the word. They spread the news. Now, we have better news. We have news of the Savior who was born, who died, who rose again. I think we should talk about it, don't you? I think we should spread it. That's the news our world needs to hear. And so they spread the news. And then notice that in verse 65, it says they lay these things up in their hearts. They learned how to contemplate. They learned, as we need to learn in this distracting age, how to be quiet and how to reflect upon truth and to get these things weighed down deep into our hearts so that they control how we think, what we do, how we act, the decisions we make. We need to get these things and lay them up in our hearts. But then, let me say this. A third thing that I want to pass on. Let's simply remember... From this text, if you remember nothing else, remember John the Baptist's name means Jehovah is gracious. So, Jehovah is gracious. That's what it means. Jehovah is gracious. The God of grace has intervened. He is the God who rescues from the depths and we contribute nothing to it. His salvation is all of grace from first to last. And believer, you are in Christ and God has made you and with you an eternal covenant of friendship through infinite grace. Grace. Grace, as the old Puritan John Owen put it, grace that is endless, bottomless, boundless. And when we consider our hearts and what we were before that grace touched our hearts, do you not agree with me that it is an astounding thing to consider? that I now have a heart that begins to be tender in regard to sin, that I now have a heart that is new within, that I now have a heart that is at peace with God, that I now have a heart that trusts alone in the Lord, that I now have a heart that is large in love, a heart that is in awe of God, a heart that is kept alive by the promises of God. That's what God, in His grace, has done. For each one of you who believes in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. I'd say that's great, wouldn't you? 
I'd say that's wonderful, wouldn't you? I would say that's grace. I would say that's almighty grace. Because only almighty grace can change a heart like mine. What about yours? So someone here this morning is a stranger to that grace. You don't know the God of grace. You've never experienced the saving grace of God. You don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're saying maybe, well, my sin is just too great. My answer is, Jehovah is gracious. You're saying, I'm just too tangled up in in these things, these things that bind me. And my answer is, Jehovah is gracious. Maybe even someone here says, I wish he would shut up and sit down. I just don't want to hear it. And my answer to you is, Jehovah is gracious not to make me shut up and sit down, but perhaps to open your heart so that you begin to love the word and love this God who speaks his word of grace this morning. John Owen the Puritan says it so beautifully. Speaking of really the, the, the infinite grace of God and, the, and, and the, the, the infinite sufficiency of the blood of Christ, Owen says, There is enough, enough grace for millions of worlds if they were because it floats into it from an infinite bottomless fountain. An infinite bottomless fountain. You see? It can never be capped. It can never be stopped. It will never go dry. An infinite bottomless fountain. The infiniteness of grace in respect of its spring and fountain will answer all objections that might hinder our souls from drawing nigh to communion with him and from a free embracing of him. Which is old language for saying that this grace can overcome whatever is in your life so that you embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And then he says this, and with this I'll stop. John Owen says, on the authority of God's word, Show me the sinner that can spread his iniquities to the dimensions of this grace. Show me the sinner that can spread his iniquities to the dimensions of this grace. Here is mercy enough for the greatest, the oldest, the stubbornest transgressor. And God's people said, Amen.